My name is Geraldo Cadava, and this is Writing Latinos, a podcast from Public Books. Latino scholars, memoirists, novelists, journalists, and others have used the written word as their medium for making a statement about Latinidad. We'll talk to some of them about how their writing illuminates the Latino experience. Some of our episodes will be nerdy and academic, while others will be playful and lighthearted. All will offer thoughtful reflections on Latino identity and how writing conveys some of its meanings. If you like what you hear, like and subscribe to Writing Latinos wherever you get your podcasts. Now for the show. Raquel Gutierrez is a writer, performer, and educator based in Tucson, Arizona. They're the author of Brown Neon, the book we're talking about today. Brown Neon was named one of the best books of 2022 by The New Yorker and Hyperallergic. It was a finalist for the Lambda Literary Prize for Best Lesbian Biography slash Memoir and is a finalist for the 2023 Creative Nonfiction Firecracker Award from the Community of Literary Magazines and Presses. Gutierrez has received numerous fellowships and teaches writing in the MFA program at Oregon State University Cascades. The producer and editor of Writing Latinos, Tasha Sandoval, will also be joining us in this conversation today. Hi, Tasha. Hi, Jerry. Thanks again for having me. And thank you so much for joining us, Raquel. It's my absolute pleasure to be here, Geraldo and Tasha. Thanks for inviting me. So I'll get started. Um, I did not know that this was a Tucson book. I'm uh, from Tucson. And so when I was reading it, you know, all the place names, Barrio Anita, Barrio Viejo, and El Minuto and El Tiradito, it just kind of, you know, really struck me. Um, so can you tell me what your Tucson story is? Sure. Um, yeah. So I'm coming up on my seventh year in Tucson from Los Angeles. And I moved, um, I had a, a very specific occasion to move to Tucson, and that was to do the MFA at the University of Arizona. But all of my, um, my, my partner is in Tucson, and we started seeing one another shortly before I moved to Tucson. And so uh, right off the bat, I had a very romantic relationship to Tucson on multiple valence um, and so, um, and it's interesting too, because I have a psychic that I've been seeing for like almost a decade back in Los Angeles. And, um, yeah, a decade ago, the Sonoran Desert would show up in, in my, in our readings. Basically he sits me down and goes through all my chakras and registers all the, all the images that, um, sort of generate from my, my, my seven chakras and, um, yeah, and the uh, the Sonoran Desert uh, figured prominently for for many years until I understood why. That's really amazing, and I feel like usually the migration goes the other way from Tucson to Los Angeles. I'm thinking of like Lalo Guerrero or something like that. You know, uh, usually a lot of Tucsonenses end up in LA, but you came the other way, and so I wonder. Um, you know, I've made the drive that the same drive you opened the book with from Tucson to Southern California a lot and gone in that direction through Blythe. But, uh, you know, does it feel any different to you to be heading? Does the desert feel any different to you? That is to be heading towards Los Angeles or from Los Angeles? Um, if the familiarity to uh, back to Tucson, back to the, to Southern Arizona from Southern California, um, it feels like home. 
So when I'm back in Los Angeles, I mean, I'm in California now, I'm in San Francisco, um, and we're heading back to Tucson. So um, I'm just so eager to be back in, in the desert right now. I'm just like, ah, I'm tired of being cold. I'm tired of wearing a jacket. Let's, let's take off our clothes. Um, but it is um, a, a, an environment, a space, a topography that agrees with me, um, this sort of... Uh, um, you know, uh, we think that the desert is, is barren. We think the desert is, uh, um, it's, it's by itself in the sense that it's not, uh, uh, inhabited by a range of, uh, of both humans and, uh, and animal creatures. Um, it's just such a, a full, it's just full of life and it's blooming and it's just a great place to, um, it's been really good to me. I, I feel really good there. I don't know what my psychic, um, it's so interesting, you know, in the sense it's like the way people kind of see things for you before you're able to, and then arriving to the place and you're like, oh my God, I had no idea, but this feels completely, um, like my habitus. Yeah. What gets me all the time when I land coming from Chicago is just the openness of the sky and the smell of the earth. And I, I bet coming from Los Angeles, you feel something similar. Yeah, I feel like I can finally um, relax and breathe and take my time and um, read all the books I never got to because I was stuck in traffic. Quick quiz. What's your favorite Mexican food in Tucson? My favorite Mexican food in Tucson? Um, you know, Tacos Absin makes this really weird, like in the sense that I've never had it before. This crispy lengua, um, well, you can put it anywhere, but I like it in tacos. Well, the, the other thing I wanted to ask you about Tucson is when I was writing my first book about Tucson and just beginning all my research, when I was first starting to find my way in the city, and I, I was born there and lived there for the first few years of my life, but hadn't lived there for another 25 years until I was writing my dissertation. And when I was beginning to form relationships, make inroads with local historians, everyone told me that I had to talk to Big Jim Griffith and Thomas Sheridan and Bunny Fontana. And I when I read your book and here you are another Tucson writer, I mean, I kind of identified you more in the vein of people like Guadalupe Castillo and Margot Cowan, these women lawyers who sure. kind of started their careers during the sanctuary movement and people sure. like Isabel Garcia, very sure. like a, uh, you yeah, know, tradition amazing, of writing. Amazing, that's very different. Yeah. yeah. They're all amazing people. So, um, you know, and, and there's just been so much great literature that to have come from Tucson and what kind of strands of Tucson writing do you most identify with? Um, the most, I guess I, I, uh, uh, see Almanac of the Dead as a sort of, a um, a, a map of Tucson and, and also it's, uh, um, how prescient it was, um, and the sort of the lore around its writer, Leslie Marvin Silko, and the way that she has sort of um, gone underground in Tucson, except until that very amazing profile of her in The New Yorker that um, just like, what? She's, you know, you, she opened the door for somebody. Um, and uh, so in the sense of just like, um, the way she's able to sort of read the uh, a history of nefarious um, dispossession and the way in which uh, uh, settlers made their money and sort of the, um, uh, yeah, the Wild West slash, uh, you know, black market uh, informal economies that um, sort of animate the, uh, 
the economic realities in, in Tucson. Um, and also to kind of give me a sense of uh, a, a Tucson before, um, well, you know, before the 21st century, before the Trump era, um, you know, uh, Tucson as the, its nickname, right, the, the dirty T, sort of a down and out kind of like, uh, you know, I love just uh, as, a, as, a, as a self-identified dirtbag, I just love Tucson for its um, for the for the home that it, it, it affords me that it gives me in in the sense of uh, you know whatever desires for belonging I have um, it's uh, it reminds me of L A to be honest it reminds me of L A in the nineties and L A in the nineties was amazing um, and so Tucson when I first arrived just was a great place um, to land and to and to live and to be able to afford my life on my own terms. And, um, you know, and that opens up various sort of conversations about gentrification and, and land and history and neighborhoods and uh, sort of the changes around it, uh, which I'm happy to, you know, I'm always happy to sort of engage these, um, these tensions. Um, but that's the thing in the sense like you can't afford your life somewhere, you have to go somewhere else. And I think in some way, I'm interested in, in uh, parsing out the um, particularities of, uh, of, of, of movement, mobility, and migration. Thank you for letting me indulge um, the Tucson connection a little bit. Always. No, for sure. Tucson, I feel like, yeah, I feel like we're all, anytime I meet somebody out in the world, out in the wild that has a Tucson connection, so I'm just like, it's so special. Yeah, it? there's like a real connection there. Like Tucson does, you know, there's, there's um, always something to talk about when you meet someone else from some Tucson. So thank you so much for that. For sure. Let's uh, let's talk now about your uh, book, Brown Neon, which is what brought us together here today. And first, I just want to ask you about the title. In, in one section, uh, uh, one chapter called Behind the Barrier, Resisting the Border Wall, Prototypes as Art, you write, I am a brown neon sign, and it's a susceptibility to being noticed against the landscape. And so I'm wondering if you can speak about this metaphor of brown neon and tell us how you came about it um, as your title for the book. Um, yeah, I, you know, it was always a title that I had um, tossed back and forth with uh, Rafa Esparza, uh, the visual artist and performance artist who I've written a, about um, over the course of both of our uh, creative trajectories. Um, we thought it'd be great to do some sort of journal or platform, some sort of publishing um, uh, thing that would uh, connect writers with artists, you know, writers um, helping to sort of document and, and uh, dare I say, canonize, you know, the artists that were most um, important to us. And, uh, and that never, you know, that didn't... Um, that hasn't happened and so i'm like okay well it's been 10 years i think i'm just you know it's too good of a title not to not to um utilize uh for a way to, to um you know talk about the convergences around identity right uh queerness brownness latinidad um uh, migrants children of immigrants um, the border and uh, the, the cultural um, contact zones that we create through our different sort of intersectional points across identity, our investments in community, um, what, you know, the critical witnessing of just the, the changes in our communities and our neighborhoods um, and making work, right? That sort of speaks to um, 
well, those, what are, what are they? Changes, devolutions, evolutions. Um, so, and I knew I had to figure out a way to, to work brown neon into the, um, the body of the work, right? It's like, how, how, how does it work um, in the space of these essays that I'm connecting? Um, and Brown Neon, you know, also sort of speaking to that history of, um, well, right, those uh, that infrastructural history that gives us Interstate 10, that gives us the, uh, you know, the, um, the roadways that connect one coast to the other. Um, and on these roads um you know these roads these things that that ultimately we had to have so much uh, destruction right of the of the natural environment for these roads to kind of go forward the you know the um sort of the car car culture road trip culture um route 66 culture all the ways that are the traces of uh, of um, americana the kind of dot the landscape and the way that uh, neon signs right is that that uh um yeah, that uh, the bat signal or the lighthouse or these uh, um, signs of life or signs of like, hey, driver, you're tired. Come, you know, come lay your weary head here. So, you know, neon sign kind of playing a role in, um, in broadcasting uh, various types of, um, well, right, safe uh, refuge, food, um, gasoline, like the things you need to kind of keep going. So I really loved the way you explored queer evolutions from the 90s to today and kind of looking at butch identity specifically and butch elders. So I wanted to take some time talking about the importance of that identity and the butch elder in your life, who was Jean Cordova, uh, which you write about in the chapter on making a butch family. Um, and I would just love to have a sense of what that butch identity means to you and how it's evolved in your writing and art making and hear more about Jean Cordova herself. Sure. Um, so Jean Cordova and I met in, gosh, I want to say 2008, 2009. So um, about 15 years ago now, although she did pass away in 2016, early 2016, the day after or the day before uh, David Bowie um, passing. So just kind of, uh, one of, you know, this instance of all these um, sort of markers of your own youth in the sense that like, I'm not a young person anymore. All of my heroes are, are leaving uh, the earthly plane. Um, but Jean Cordova, was a lesbian organizer, writer, um, a convener, someone who was also um, commenting, right, commentator on, uh, on on queer culture, lesbian culture, activist culture, um, a journalist, and someone who was also um, a, a social worker, a former nun. Um, gosh, quite when I, when I describe her, I'm like, oh, she was like, what, you know, a, a cooler, hotter, sexier, re more rebellious, badass, um, Forrest Gump in the sense that she was able to touch various parts of history in, um, you know, through different vantage points. Um, she has so many great stories in her memoir when we were outlaws and so she had a um diverse set of audiences 
in that period. Whereas if she was writing today, those audiences would have no problem kind of, you know, sort of melding and in, in, in existing in one place. Um, but she opens her memoir with, um, with uh, a really incredible anecdote about um, following Patty Hearst and the Symbionese Liberation Army. And so to be able to like narrate that very specific history uh, from her vantage point is an important um, intervention in the way that we sort of uh, understand the history of, um, of radical movements, of radical affinities, of um, uh, organizing, you know, the, the, the history of civil rights that we're not always uh, privy to because uh, the way in which those histories are narrated are from, uh, well, like, right, Hidalgo from historians, from white historians, you know, sort of a particular set of, uh, of um, gatekeepers. And so uh, Jean, as a, as a journalist, was writing about the Daddy Tank, which was the, uh, a really violent um, uh, holding cell for lesbians and butch lesbians in the uh, Civil Brand uh, Institute of, um, of Corrections, uh, the women's jail up in City Terrace in East Los Angeles, and was bringing a lot of attention to, um, yeah, just the, uh, uh, the just violent um, treatment in, I mean, the whole carceral system is, is terrible, but in that period, right, just like a very specific attention to the way um, butch lesbians were experiencing um, just uh, unfair treatment from the other prisoners. I wanted to ask you about space and landscape um, in Tucson or East Los Angeles or San Antonio or Marfa, any of the places that feature in your book. And so much of what you write about is the kind of transformation of landscapes, whether it's about, you know, the, the transformation of the desert through the imposition of border walls or Barrio Viejo and its colonization and gentrification, or uh, Joshua Tree as a destination for tech lesbians, for example. So can you talk about the importance of these themes like space and spatial belonging, the loss of that space, and when possible, the reclaiming of that space in your writing? Yeah. Um, place has always been uh, important to me and my writing because I grew up in Southern California in Southeast Los Angeles and Los Angeles is being um, so huge and almost incomprehensible, you know, hard to navigate um, and overwhelming. Um, but I am in debt to my parents for uh, meeting there and settling there. Um, and so I come to story through my parents and my mom is an incredible storyteller and was always um, uh, gifting us just stories of her upbringing in El Salvador, in rural El Salvador. And, um, and, and that, my God, my mom is an incredible storyteller, also just so funny, incredible comedic timing. Um, and I think when, you're, um, when your parents is from another country and you're raised in the U.S., um, you know, I, I, I understand sort of the, the impulse towards, um, a, a sense of fragmentation, 
um, up until I had a conversation and um, would hear my friend Beatriz Cortez, uh, a visual artist, and actually my former uh, professor at Cal State Northridge. Um, I had Beatriz Cortez as a professor in Central American literature, and um, and so it's just it's just amazing now to sort of see her kind of second life as a as a visual artist um, who's making work all over the country. Um, but she has this uh, idea around simultaneity that she is as a you know someone who left El Salvador at eighteen because she was a university student and all her friends were being. Um, kidnapped and sort of and disappeared and and it was sure that she'd be next so she came to Arizona at 18 um, but always is in El Salvador and is always wherever she is at the moment whether it's Southern California visiting family in Arizona maybe up in the, H the Hudson Valley where she's uh, installing new work but this idea of simultaneity of just like you're you're there and you're back where you're from and um, and so I I like that um, idea as a space to inhabit um, not just your identity, but identity in relation to a place and the way in which those places have um, histories. And if you are tuned into those histories, those histories in, in one way or another imbricate um, your, uh, you yourself as well as like whatever sort of family situation you belong to and all those sort of... Um, the way in which bonds kind of uh, ripple out, right? It's like myself, my family, my neighbors, my neighborhood, my community, all the ways in which all these little points of, um, of belonging start to sort of aggregate, um, but they aren't able to do so without, belong without being tethered to a particular location. Um, and the location is amazing because if you live there for an X amount of time, you're witness to the changes and you're witness to the way in which those changes um, help you change. But just like um, I've always felt a relationship to place just because I know my parents went to a lot of trouble to leave their places for new places. And so to me, that's always signaled place is an important um uh, thing that enables you to live a good life, to live a life on your own terms or to live a life beyond survival. Yeah, that's that's great because when you are are writing to us about each of these places, you're not just describing a landscape, you're kind of describing or uh, interrogating your relationship to that place and your belonging in that place. And I, I think that just comes across perfectly in the San Antonio section where, you know, the title is the question, do I, what is it? Do I like San Antonio? Do I love San Antonio? I do can't I remember. San do I love San Antonio? Yeah, that's right. So it's not just a, about the place. It's about this question that you have when you enter all these places, like, do I belong in this place? For sure. And I'm always concerned with that, especially in this era where our mobility is so called into question um, for anybody who leaves a place for another place and the uh, sort of the um, impressions of uh, displacement um, or, you know, the, the question of displacement that gets uh, called in, uh, who am I displacing by showing up in this neighborhood? Uh, but also, you know, understanding like, oh, well, there are certain neighborhoods that have a high turnover rate just because of the way in which university towns kind of call in people for an X amount of time and then those people decide to to leave or maybe leave that particular neighborhood for a more stable, um, you know, residential neighborhood 
where they're not living next to a frat house, perhaps, or, you know, other things. But um, so it's interesting in a sense, you know, I, I do hear conversations about people feeling um, economically ashamed that they can afford a down payment in a, in a neighborhood that's predominantly, um, you know, black or Latino. And I'm like, you know what, it's either going to be you or a worse person than you or BlackRock or a bank um, or Zillow. Um, if you can find a way to connect with people in your community and find a way to have a, um, you know, be stringent in the way you belong to that community, like help the kids who are your neighbors with their college essays or, uh, you know, what I don't know. I mean... So, I don't know, I just feel like um, I've encountered a lot of like impulses towards like isolationism and um, and our own sort of uh, um, reactionary uh, feelings to, to newcomers in our neighborhoods. I don't know, I just feel like the border wall is not something between the U.S. and Mexico, but something that we sort of... Um, uh, create to sort of hold on to the things because um systemically uh at a systematic level um you know the the, the safety nets are just um right they're where they're getting cut with scissors writing latinos is brought to you by public books an online magazine of ideas arts and scholarship you can find us at publicbooks.org that's p-u-b-l-i-c B-O-O-K-S dot org. To donate to public books, visit publicbooks.org backslash donate. I would love to talk about the gay bar, queer bar space that comes up throughout a few of your essays. So you talk about the plush pony, reds, mustache Mondays. Um, and not only, so I'd love to know how these places influenced your path and your writing and how you're seeing the evolution of those spaces and, and many of them disappearing. Of course. Um, I think it's this, uh, um, something happens when you're a queer writer and uh, in the sense that if you're writing about um, publics, queer publics, um, it's always going to involve the bar or the nightclub, um, these spaces that were always readily available to uh, gay men, to, to lesbians, um, to bisexual trans folks. Um, and in the sense that, you know, there's booze and uh, there's a, a private property, a space that we can sort of uh, kind of frequent and uh, go about our um, meeting one another, uh, our encounters. And so, and because there are so many and so many um, bars, uh, clubs are ultimately refracting the community that they cater to, um, they're really interesting places because they're also um, hearkening to the neighborhood that they're in, the cities that they're in, and the communities that um, grow, that, you know, that bring up whatever LGBTQ members of those communities, right? There's, there's just something there to kind of uh, tease out. Um, what, what does it mean that uh, the plush pony 
is kind of hard to find in El Sereno, um, a neighborhood that, you know, is pretty rough. One, you know, a rougher East Los Angeles neighborhood um, that attracts, uh, you know, its clientele. And, um, you know, the, in Brown Neon, I write that Laura Aguilar, the, the late Chicana lesbian photographer, uh, set up a little her, you know, her photo taking station because it was a way for her to um, break the ice, right? It was like uh, the, the, the photography was her social lubrication. She can kind of like uh, initiate conversations, invite people to get their photos taken. And, um, and so, you know, belong, have, a, have some sense of, a, of social connection. Um, so yeah, so a lot of, you know, I write about these places because they were also my introduction to a, the public, a public space outside of my own private domestic space, right? Whatever nuclear family dynamic my, my family were trying to reproduce, I was um, not interested in that. I was more interested in um, in community and creating communal bonds in meeting artists, um, learning about DJing, um, you know, I'm just like, oh, what is the, you know, where was the first house uh, DJ, you know, from in the U.S.? Like, why is this music so important to us? Um, uh, what is, you know, what is, why is disco so important? Um, you know, the way that like all these uh, that are, are, are queer sort of musical forms uh, emerge and sort of um, uh, have their own sort of um, history. I'm just thinking of, of like house music during the... Um, the height of the AIDS epidemic, um, disco sort of uh, ushering in, right, the Reagan era. Um, and, but also, you know, listening to music in the context of, um, of queer Latinidad, to be able to, to appreciate, you know, salsa or cumbia, um, all the Spanish language, um, pop music, that um, takes on a whole sort of different listening dynamic because now we're getting to um, really enjoy this music in the space of our, um, where, you know, where our desires can run rampant and we don't have to be in the closet and our grandmothers aren't going to judge us or no one's going to throw chanclas at our heads for being, you know, uh, cochinos, queer cochinos. Um, now we can sort of uh, be free and to be ourselves. So, um, so that was really like amazing. I remember in West Hollywood Wednesday nights, of course, because, uh, that's the only night Latinas could get in West Hollywood. Uh, there was a club called Escandalo and, uh, and it was amazing because it was, you know, every it was like very pop music and then they had a few cumbias and salsa and a lot of hip hop. And you had a lot of, um, Latino kids from like East Los Angeles and San Gabriel, the San Gabriel Valley, Long Beach coming out and encountering one another. Uh, and it was also the first time, you know, many of us were, were like, oh my gosh, these there are homeboys here. There are serious straight up gay cholos here. Amazing. Um, so, so many, you know, so many parties. So, and also because I'm Generation X, right? I have to also mention the way that we learned about these parties were different than the way we learned about them today. You know, it was a very like word of mouth, uh, you had to pick up flyers at the at the community center, right at the public health um, AIDS prevention center, and call a phone number, and you would find out where the parties were. In resisting the border wall prototypes as land art, you write that um, art is a hostile place, and I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that, both in um, the context of the 
border wall prototypes, but also in the context of trying to survive as an art maker and art critic. And uh, maybe first you could describe the experience of going to see the border prototypes and why you wanted to make that trip. Yes. So um, I learned about the border wall prototypes from uh, Carolina Miranda's uh, reporting for the Los Angeles Times. She's the Los Angeles Times arts, art critic and narrated uh, a trip with the, um, I believe it was Mocha San Diego and uh, who were hosting the artist Christophe Bukel. Um, and just the, uh, the, the, the inanity of, uh, of, of the fact that this artist, you know, provo you know, classic provocateur, someone who, um, made his career, uh, inciting people to, you know, very strong feelings and, um, and, you know, narrating, um, the way in which this artist also called Donald Trump a conceptual artist. <clears throat> All of these things that, you know, were provoking very strong feelings in me. And so, um, because I couldn't stop thinking about it, um, and because of my proximity to the space, it's, you know, it's, uh, I love a road trip. So it was, um, you know, seven hours and it gave me a chance to, you know, see friends, um, um, but ultimately, you know, get up really early, go to the Ote Mesa, um, entry and, um, border entry and, you know, have a very, have a very, uh, easy experience having a taxi take me and, uh, a friend to the site and, um, having folks there who live, um, in the shanty towns, um, right at the fence where you take a big tractor tire and, or like several tires and kind of balance your way to, to, to catch, a catch sight of the, of the prototypes. I, I, I just needed to see them. I just was like, okay, what are migrant, what are migrants going to experience when they arrive to, um, this point in their journey? Um, and how, ter you know, just how terrible, um, just that anticipatory uh, grief I felt of um, imagining what the what the future of these uh, prototypes held in um, in you know the architectural imaginary. Thank you. And what about the um, the other meaning of art being a hostile place? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you think about the arts and um, writing. Um, journalism, just these things that are ultimately, um, you know, they are passions. They come, they, they are born from our passions to do these things and the way in which our passions are, are this thing that, you know, is the weak spot, right? Um, it's our weak spot. Um, this is why there's so many unpaid gigs, so many unpaid internships, so many unpaid, um, apprenticeships, um, that, uh, demand a particular, um, economic, uh, support. Um, so it's just hard. It's just hard to feel like your, pa your, your, your passions are holding you hostage, um, to this thing that you want to do. Um, and art, and I, you know, I, I joke that, um, you're going to spend money on art making, writing workshops, editing workshops, software, or therapy. 
um, both do the same thing. I would rather bet on myself and learn to become a better writer than um, kind of interrogate sort of my, you know, my mother, my mother wounds with a, with a stranger. Um, I'd rather, you know, kind of um, stumble across my mother wounds in a workshop and know that like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to feel the same way. I'm going to, I'm going to feel better no matter what. Um, and in a sense, you know, art is a, is a hostile place because it is a space of healing and it is a space that demands, um, you know, uh, rigorous uh, self-interrogation. I mean, I like that. I like that idea a lot because, it, I mean, uh, it, it comes from a very conflicted place, but I hear it almost as a little bit inspiring. But I want to ask um, just a almost a throwaway question at this point that we ask everyone. What do you say in terms of Latinx or Latine? Oh, I know, right? Latinx because it's so it's such a car crash and it's just so. I mean, I'm a, I'm my own provocateur, and um, and I've had a lot of interesting arguments with people who kind of um, you know sort of uh, argue argue their way into a corner, um, argue themselves into a corner. You know, in the sense, it's just like, it just doesn't sound good. I'm like, but we're, but we're messing with language all the time. Like, why would there be a washeteria, you know, if we weren't messing with language from the jump? It's just like, just say you don't like trans people and move on, right? And just like, okay, cool. Um, Latine, amazing. Uh, Latinx, amazing. The X, right? I'm, I'm always reminded of uh, the Bushes in Huchita and Oaxaca that Graciela uh, Iturbide, um, you know, became... Uh, you know, made, made those beautiful photos of uh, of the mushes, the trans women in uh, in Huchitan. So I always feel like the X, you know, is always um, uh, a mode of uh, self determination. And if you're not down with that, and a lot of people do not like people to self determine themselves, they would like for people to to be like them and have a toxic desire to be led. So um, Lat yeah, Latinx I think is uh, is great because it's provocative. Latina is beautiful because because um, it sounds nice, right? It sounds lyrical. It sounds like a harp. Um, uh, Latino, Latina. I mean, all of those things are super problematic, but it's a problematic that kind of, that you know in, inspires and uh, and, pr and provokes more uh, dialogue and uh and an attempt to articulate our ideas around how we carry ourselves right sort of the ontological relationships um and the ways that you know just how do we how do we let structures of power um name us thank you for listening to this episode of writing latinos We'd love to hear your suggestions for new books that we should be reading and talking about. Drop us a line at heraldo at publicbooks.org. That's G-E-R-A-L-D-O at publicbooks.org. This episode is brought to you by Public Books. It was produced and edited by Tasha Sandoval. Our music is City of Mirrors by the Chicago-based band Dos Santos. I'm Heraldo Cadava. We'll see you again next time. 